0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey, and I am eager and honored to be having this conversation with Michelle Mays today on the Living Truth Podcast. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, you guys, if you don't know who Michelle is, and you're living in this field dealing with betrayal in your own life, sexual addiction in your marriage, Um, or you're a professional working in this area, then maybe you need to know her because she does fabulous work. Let me tell you about Michelle. She is a licensed professional counselor. She's a CSAT, which stands for Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And her expertise is in treating betrayal trauma. She just wrote a book called The Betrayal Bind, How to Heal When the Person You Love the Most Has Hurt You the Worst. One of the most exciting things about Michelle's work is her focus on the attachment injury of sexual betrayal. This is a very recent lens through which to look at sexual betrayal and why it causes so much pain and damage. And historically, it has not been looked at through this lens, which has caused further damage for the partner. But Michelle, your work has shed so much light on the why, why we react the way that we do in the wake of sexual betrayal. So my first question for you, Michelle, is how does viewing the partner through this attachment lens change how we understand her experience? Now, when I say her, dear audience, if you're the man that's been betrayed, yes, it fits for you too. I just happen to lead partner groups for women, but please use your pronoun as needed. Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Well, so how it changes things when we look through an attachment lens is that I think it helps us understand ourselves much, much better. So I think as a field and a lot of betrayed partners understand that they have experienced a trauma when they've experienced betrayal, they understand that that's relational in nature, right? It's in the relationship that they have with their partner. So they understand that part, but often we haven't really looked at the way that our attachment system, which is a bodily-based system inside of us, right? So we just don't think about our attachment system as much. So we haven't thought about how our attachment system is actually interacting with this betrayal and impacting everything about our experience following betrayal. So
0: let's go back to the beginning. Where does this attachment system originate Mm -hmm. and how does it form?
1: So our attachment system is a motivational system in our body. So John Wolby, who's the father of attachment theory, has talked about the attachment system as a motivational system. What that means is that it's instinctual right? Operates without us thinking about it. It's like our threat response system. Our threat response system is instinctual, right? So our attachment system has to do with how we bond, how we attach to other people in our lives. And when we come into the world, we are little bonders. You know, we come into the world and we are created to bond with our parents and bond with our caregivers and create and form an attachment with them. And it's in that bond and in that attachment that we actually form our identity, right? Like we have a sense of existing because somebody is looking at us, right? Because somebody is gazing into our eyes and that's how we know we actually exist in the world as babies, right? And we bond through all of that touch and eye contact and mirroring that our parent provides. And that also creates a sense of safety, And it gives us a sense of whether the world is predictable, can be trusted, whether we are worthy, whether we matter, whether we're important, all of those things, those messages that shape how all the rest of our lives go, get put into us, get grown in us through that original attachment. So when we attach as babies and infants and toddlers, it really sets us up for the rest of our life and our future relationships. So we can have really wonderful, secure, stable attachment in infancy and childhood, and that's gonna set us up to assume in our adult relationships that we are worthy and that people are gonna respond to us well and we're gonna get our needs met. Or we can have attachment in infancy and uh, childhood that is not stable and not consistent and doesn't provide us with what we need. And that then sets us up to go into our adult relationships with a sense of insecurity about whether or not we're worthy, whether or not we can get our needs met, whether or not the world is safe and predictable, all of those kinds of things. So what happens for us in infancy sets us up in adulthood for how we attach in our adult relationships.
0: Okay, so would you say from your work with sexual addicts, Mm -hmm. would you say what percentage of sexual addicts have some kind of major attachment wounds and
1: injuries? You know, I don't have research on this. I don't know that research on this exists in the sex addiction population. I just mean kind of more from anecdotally. (laughs) Yeah, anecdotally anecdotally from 20 years of working with hundreds of addicts. Yes. What I can say is almost all. Yes. Have attachment wounds um, from childhood and in some way have some level of insecure attachment. So they don't have attachment they can trust.
0: And so they would you have, do you ever label the sex addiction, the acting out sexually as a misattachment in the area of their sexuality?
1: Yes. The way that I think of that and the language that I use for that is often that their dependency needs. So when we talk about dependency needs, what we're talking about are attachment-based needs, right? Which are our need to feel like we matter, to feel like we belong, to feel that we are worthy of connection and safety with others. And so those are the needs that all of us have as human beings. We all have those needs. For uh, somebody who is dealing with sex addiction, often what they have done is they have sexualized those dependency needs. So mm. what's happened is they have learned to try to get those needs met through the high or the um, satiation or the trancing out that sex can provide when they're acting out, which in some way, either it blocks the fact that they can't get those needs met. Needs met. It like sort of medicates it and blocks them from feeling the longing and the loss, or it gives them sort of a pseudo way of meeting those needs. So, for example, if I, as a sex addict, part of my acting out is to um, act out with sex workers, and in that Encounter what I feel like. Let's say I go to massage parlors, right? That's how I act out. And in that encounter, in a massage parlor, what I feel is focused on. And what I feel is nurtured and taken care of. Because this person doesn't, isn't asking anything of me. And they're focusing on me and they're taking care of me and they're giving me pleasure and touch that feels good now for a few minutes that attachment based need to matter to feel important to feel cared for is getting met through the sex addiction
0: yeah and then what happens afterwards though i mean for the for the sex addict that leaves and i see i know this in my own husband's life and in so many of the addicts that we've worked with that sense of shame it's basically like shooting themselves in the foot as they walk out of that situation and their the self-loathing begins. So yeah. Like I think temporarily I mean, like relief yeah. and then it makes them feel worse.
1: Yeah. I think depending on who you are, like I've worked with addicts who don't actually go through the shame and self-loathing part of it. <laughs> so they don't, really? Yeah. They don't, they kind of skip right over that. Um, Because they've been acting out so much that they've gotten sort of um, immune to that part of this cycle.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, For others, there is that immediate down, coming down from the high, coming down from being in the bubble into, oh, here I am again. I promised myself I wouldn't do this. And um, I have shame. I have uh, remorse. I have guilt. I have all of that. And I'm back to not knowing how to get this basic need met. Yeah. Right, cuz I just I just like had a little hit of something that assuaged the need for a few minutes, but it didn't really take care of it and I don't actually really know how to take care of it. I don't know how to do that with myself in relationship or with others in relationship.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it leaves me also without with an unanswered problem. That will drive me back to the addiction and the addictive behavior again.
0: Now, one thing I want to say to all of our partners, our our wives or our husbands who are the betrayed that are listening to this is that it is not your job to fix that or meet that need in the addict. Now, you might hear Michelle give this explanation and you might start feeling some empathy for your sexually addicted spouse. Mm-hmm. and you might hear it and want to throw up like it like it might make you feel like we're making some kind of an excuse. Just pay attention to what is coming up for you as you hear this explanation. The point in me asking Michelle these questions is is to help us understand that there is a whole deep river of reasons why the addict acts out that have nothing to do with you as the partner whatsoever. And those reasons are based on really deep level attachment injuries that that person with the addiction is going to need to get their own treatment
1: and help to overcome. So um, can I just just piggyback on that? I would just also add to it that understanding your partner's addiction, understanding what drives it, understanding what's underneath it, having compassion is, is, does not also eliminate responsibility taking. So you can have understanding and you can have compassion and you can also ask for accountability right so they they aren't i think sometimes betrayed partners get stuck in this place where it feels like if i understand or i offer compassion i'm somehow excusing it the behavior versus i actually understanding it helps me as the betrayed partner mm-hmm. to understand what this is about and i'm still asking for responsibility taking
0: and it can be very confusing for partners who are highly empathic to feel that empathy for their spouse one moment Mm -hmm. And then another moment feel the, the, the hatred, the anxiety, the anger, the it's very confusing, which is a lot of what this whole attachment ambivalence Mm -hmm. is about that you describe in um, your new book. So why did you call it the betrayal bind, Michelle? What is the bind that you're referring to?
1: Yeah. So I called it the betrayal bind because I think Again, this goes back to our attachment systems and when we factor in how we operate in relationships and how we connect and bond to other people, it creates a different look at betrayal and what we see is that betrayal is very, very unique in the sense that, especially for betrayed partners who are dealing with sexual betrayal, if we're talking about sexual betrayal in particular, it's very, very unique because you are confronted with this incredible bind and dilemma that the person who's your primary attachment figure, who is the person who usually you turn to for solace and comfort and companionship and fun and all of those things has now, because they are also the person who's cheated on you, has now become a source of danger and threat for you. And this puts you into an incredible bind. And that dilemma and that bind then creates a whole bunch of other binds. And all of those binds are also driven by the attachment piece and have the attachment piece and how you bond factored into them. And so in the book, we look at this primary big dilemma of, you know, the person that I love the most has hurt me the worst. That's the subtitle of the book, right? But we also then look at the binds that spill out from that. Mm -hmm. Um, so we take a look all through the book at the different binds that unfold.
0: I'd love to hear just kind of a summary of some of those binds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope this will prompt you all to actually get Michelle's book and we'll link, we'll link to it in the show notes, but just, can you give us a little taste?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, we talk about the attachment ambivalence bind, which is a little bit of what we've just talked about. Understanding that involves understanding the way that you're two motivational systems, attachment and threat, actually come into conflict. And it's the way that partners actually feel like they're bouncing all around the world and feeling like one minute, you know, you wake up in the morning and you feel like you hate your partner and you never want to talk to them again (laughs) and you just can't wait for them to go to work and get out of the house. And then when they come home and at the end of the day, you're tired and you're exhausted and you actually want to connect with them. And so you reach for them and you reach for connection with them, and you let yourself sort of melt into that. And then you remember all of a sudden oh, wait a minute, something triggers you, something comes in, and then you push away again. So there's a whole cycle that's spelled out in the book that helps you look at how this, how you cycle through this process and coming into conflict with the threat system telling you to escape the danger. And your attachment system telling you to go close to your partner. Because that was where safety, your systems tell you safety is in both these places. Safety yeah. is in connection and safety is in disconnection. So it's very confusing because you don't know which one to do. And so partners bounce all around the world in that. Yes. That's one that, of is, the
0: that is so true, Michelle. And so then a lot of our partners, we find ourselves feeling crazy. Because Mm -hmm. we're wanting two different things at the same time, or we're bouncing between two different Mm -hmm. needs. And so a lot of addicts start to look at the partner as though they have lost their mind. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, therapists and people helpers that don't understand this bind, that don't understand partner betrayal trauma and, and all of this through a lens of attachment, start to assume that the partner presented this way before the betrayal even happened. And it must be an innate problem that they have. And the spotlight gets put off of the addict and onto the partner. And it creates all kinds of problems like therapy induced trauma, spiritual trauma, when you go to your clergy for help and et cetera. So I hear you'd explain this, Michelle. And like just this little nutshell of what you just described, I am hoping will give some partners that are listening to this episode a huge amount of relief oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. There is a reason why I am um, bouncing back and forth between I need you and go away, get out of my face. You're dangerous to me. And so for addicts who are listening to this, what can they do to support their partner through this attachment ambivalence?
1: I think one is just to recognize that it's a really normal phenomenon, right? This is basically the attachment system being plunged into disorganization and that is sort of why it's gotten such a bad rap because a disorganized attachment system can look like a lot of different things and when the original research was done on disorganized attachment which is the fourth attachment style what what that research showed is that it's really somebody doing all the different things. I'm trying to come close to you. I'm trying to get away from you. I'm trying to come close and then I'm trying to get away. It's, it's that mix of, I don't know what to do because you're my primary person and yet now you're dangerous. And so I think what the addicted partner can understand is that this is really normal and that this is a real dilemma that your partner is in. And the dilemma that they're in is that they do love you and They have been connected to you for often months, years. You have life together. You have children together. You have all these things, right? Mm -hmm. And yet you are also a source of danger because you've cheated on them and a source of pain. And so they're in this dilemma of, I want to come close to you because actually getting close to you feels good, Mm -hmm. right? My whole nervous system can settle down if I come into connection with you because you're my person in the world. But then when I do that and I remember that also you've been hurting me in really profound ways, then that scares me terribly. I have a really big fear response and then I need to push away from you because I remember that maybe it's not safe to be close. And so I think for addicted partners to really understand that, this is this is a real dilemma that is happening inside of the betrayed partner, and often until they understand it, like uh, we do a lot of work with this in our coaching program in our Braving Hope coaching program, and over and over and over again, what I hear partners say is, just understanding it helped settle me down. Right? I actually by understanding it felt like I got more regulated, just because I didn't feel crazy anymore. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like something was wrong with me, yeah, it's right very So just knowing it is regulating. And then the work that we do in there, often with the partners is, you know, until you know about what's happening, you're in a reactive place, right? Your two your two systems, your threat response system, and your attachment system are at war with one another. They usually sync up and work well together. Usually, when we're stressed, we want to call our partner or text our partner, right? Our threat response system fires and it prompts our attachment system then says, hey, reach out for connection. This is how you're gonna feel better. So normally these two systems work really well with one another. When betrayal happens and we have this dilemma of our primary attachment figure becoming dangerous, that's when these systems come into conflict. And when that happens, we get very reactive because we don't know what's happening. We don't have language for it. We don't have. No. We just know that in the morning we hate you, and in the afternoon we love you, and in the evening we hate you again. <laughs> and, and we're just bouncing all through it. So once we have some language for this and we understand it, then we can start to make some choices about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what, as I'm working with partners, what I want them to be doing is to start to actually choose. Where are the places that it's actually safe for me to seek some connection with my partner? And where are the places that right now I actually can't be connected because of where we're at in the process, because mm-hmm. of what's happened? And I'm going to make some choices. I'm going to be an awareness about what's happening, awareness of my own systems and bodily processes. And I'm going to choose instead of reacting and bouncing around in a powerless manner. Mm. And choosing
0: that ability to choose mm-hmm. and to be empowered in acting instead of reacting changes everything
1: for purpose. It, it is the entire ball game. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: I know that I personally, even when when I see women who feel so isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. on this journey and are having these experiences that feel like they're losing their mind. And when they realize in in the context of, of our support groups, they realize I'm not the only one feeling like this. And all these other women are feeling like this too in my small group. Mm-hmm. And when, when they couple that, like I'm not alone and what's happening to me has an explanation, like a scientific explanation.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it
0: makes sense. And then they're not alone in it. They're given, well, that's the first one. They're not alone and it makes sense. And then they're given choices. Like they're given the ability to regulate and they're given the ability to make choices that are empowered rather than reactive. It changes everything. It's amazing.
1: I think it changes everything. And I would say the other thing that I think in a group context is powerful and also changes everything is seeing the choices that other people are making. Right? So when we are able- to like, we, we do a period of celebration every, every week on where have you braved hope? Like, what have you done? Because I want everybody to see the choices that other people are making and what that's doing for them, because we get courage from one another.